Turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 8, if you will, and we will read in Deuteronomy 8, verses 2 through 6. Thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these forty years in the wilderness to humble thee and to prove thee to know what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldst keep his commandments or no. And he humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger and fed thee with manna which thou knewest not, neither did thy fathers know, that he might make thee to know that man doth not live by bread only, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. Thy raiment waxed not old upon thee, neither did thy foot swell these forty years. Thou shalt also consider in thine heart that as a man chasteneth his son, so the Lord thy God chasteneth thee. Therefore thou shalt keep the commandments of the Lord thy God to walk in his ways and to fear him. On one occasion, as a missionary was <coughs> speaking uh, in <coughs> Japan, one of the natives who was listening to the description of the Christian God raised this question. Does your God know how his people suffer? That would seem to be an appropriate question to ask on many occasions as we think of uh, how terribly Christians suffer, and yet we say that we have a God who controls all things and who loves us, who can prevent even the hairs of our head from falling, and even so, Christians suffer so terribly. Does your God know how his people suffer? We've been following the exodus, <clears throat> the journeys of Israel from Egypt to the Promised Land, and we've seen how these people suffered a great deal. And towards the close of the journey here, Paul, uh, Moses has a discussion of <clears throat> this matter of their suffering, of the road along which they've been led and the reason for it. He tells them that they are to remember the road. In verse 2, which we read, Thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these forty years in the wilderness. Remember what the road was like. <clears throat> I believe that he would address that to us today also. Remember what the road has been like. What was the road like for them? What was the road like for you? For them, we have a description of it given a little further on in this same chapter in the 14th through the 16th verses. In the 14th verse, it speaks of the Lord thy God, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. There was the initiation of the journey, of the road. They were in bondage. They were slaves. They were suffering terribly, and God led them forth out of the house of bondage with great miracles, the parting of the Red Sea, the ten plagues, 
So it is with you and with me. We were in a house of bondage. God led us forth. If you're a Christian today, it's because God delivered you from the slavery that held you entwined, chains that man could not break. We were in slavery to our sins. Whosoever commits sin is the servant of sin, said Jesus. But if the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. Freedom from self, freedom from sin, freedom from Satan. This is the kind of freedom that Christ gives. This is the initiation of the journey. That kind of slavery that he freed us from only led to a far worse eternal slavery in the world to come. And he's done this for you and for me, if you're a Christian. But then he speaks of <clears throat> the terrible privation. There was the freeing initiation, but it led on to terrible privation, as he says in verse 15, who led thee through that great and terrible wilderness, wherein were fiery serpents and scorpions and draught, where there was no water. And God, uh, who so wondrously uh, interposed and <clears throat> delivered them, and then led them into a situation of terrible privation. And again, we can see that today. I've seen men come to Christ and immediately lose their job or lose their health, lose their families, uh, suffer terrible privation. And we wonder, why? Why would God lead in that direction? Why would he let his people suffer so? He speaks also of his miraculous provision in verse 15. Uh, who brought thee forth water out of the rock of Flint, who fed thee in the wilderness with manna, which thy fathers knew not. Not only was there terrible privation, but there was miraculous provision. And again, in our own lives, time and time again, right in the midst of extremity, right in the midst of suffering, God will suddenly step in and do something wondrous, some wondrous answer to prayer, some evident token of his concern and love for us, right in the midst of privation that he was leading us through. I remember one of our men uh, sharing from the pulpit a year ago in connection with our stewardship emphasis, how shortly after he became a Christian, his business began to undergo very severe uh, financial pressures, and it got to the uttermost extremity. One day he and I knelt and prayed together and said, God, by tomorrow something's got to happen. And then he went into his office and had a check for $10,000 in the mail. And that happened several months later again under almost identical circumstances except the check was larger. Uh, in the midst of terrible privation, miraculous provision. Why does God lead in this way? What's the purpose in his providence? He tells them what his purpose was, but first maybe we just need to remind ourselves that it was of him that affliction does not spring from the dust. Nothing in this world takes place apart from God's sovereign permission. 
God has his left hand and his right hand. Some things he causes to happen with his right hand, other things he permits to happen with his left hand. He could have prevented them from happening, so ultimately they came from him. Not a sparrow falls without his permission. Affliction does not spring from the dust, rather it's from God. Shall there be evil in the city, asked Amos, and the Lord hath not done it? And his obvious answer is no. Paul in Ephesians says that God works all things after the counsel of his own will. It was of God, this road that you've come down, both with its ups and its downs, this awful mixture, just as it was with them. God led in this. But what was his purpose? Why the mixture? He tells them why the mixture for them, and it would apply to us. He says in verse 2, Thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these forty years in the wilderness to humble thee. Number one, it was to humble them and to humble you, to mortify their pride, to show them their utter inadequacy to face life apart from him. Men are inadequate to face life, but they're not conscious of it because God sends the rain on the just and the unjust. God in his common grace causes the earth to bring forth food. He causes the seasons not to cease. He sends food and provision even to the unjust, and the unjust becomes proud. And Christians are the same way. We feel that we are self-made. We feel that we can handle our own affairs, generally speaking, and we only go to God in deep emergencies. But that's totally wrong. We couldn't live another five minutes apart from God. And he makes us conscious of that and humbles us by the way that he leads. He let their water give out. He let them have no food so that they might be humbled and realize their utter inadequacy to face life apart from him. That was the real situation. He let them feel it. He showed them their need of himself. I think of the man that I talked to this week who is very, very sick. This man, as we talked, felt his need of God. And he said, I'm ashamed to come to Jesus now and receive him as my Savior. If I wouldn't receive him when all was going well, I seem hypocritical to receive him now when I'm dreadfully sick. And I said, oh, no. God has made you feel that inadequacy which was there all along. He's brought home to you the reality of the situation that always existed for the very purpose of humbling you that you might turn to him. And he did. He did it to humble them. He did it to prove them and to prove thee, to know what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldst keep his commandments or no. He did it to mortify their pride, and he did it to manifest their perverseness, to know what was in their heart. 
God placed them under different circumstances that would test them, that it might be obvious what was in them. He puts Jesus in the wilderness. Jesus is led of the Spirit into the wilderness, where for forty days he goes without food, and then Satan comes and tempts him. We see what was in Jesus' heart as Jesus refuses to gratify his fleshly desires apart from his Father's will. And he tells Satan that he will not turn the stone into bread, for man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That the spiritual must have priority over the physical. And that when to satisfy a physical need or desire, I violate God's word that I do wrong, that God must come first. It's more important. God puts us in a variety of situations to try whether we'll put him first, whether we'll submit, whether we'll trust to him. Will we react as Job when God takes away his family and his wealth? Job says, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Will we react as Job or will we react as Jonah when God uh, deals with Jonah in a way that's displeasing to Jonah and Jonah gets angry and God says, doest thou well to be angry? And he says, I do well to be angry. How do we react? God puts us to the test. Not that God doesn't know how we will react. God knows what's in our heart. But such proving <clears throat> evidences to us and to others what's in our heart. It's a pushing to the surface of the perverseness that's there. So this perverseness can then be dealt with. God pushed on Job and he pushed on Job Initially, not much perverseness came to the surface, did it? The Lord gave, the Lord take it away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. No perverseness. He pushes a little harder. Job says, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Still no perverseness. He pushes a little harder. And Job begins to justify himself. Where is God? Oh, that I might come before him and plead my cause. And once that perverseness has been exposed, then God deals with that perversion, and he says to Job, Job, who are you to question me? Where were you when I created the world? And Job begins to see himself as he really is, and he humbles himself. And he says, I had heard of thee with the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee, wherefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. The perverseness brought to the surface that Job might know what was in himself, that it might be dealt with by God and by Job. To teach them, in the third verse it says, uh, He humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger and fed thee with manna which thou knewest not, neither did thy fathers know, that he might make thee know what that man doth not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. To teach him something. 
he taught them their inadequacy and his adequacy. He would show them their utter inadequacy to make their own way in this world, and then suddenly he would step in and provide the food, the water that they need, and show his adequacy to meet every need. He showed them that they could have all things, and without him they had nothing. But if they had him, they had everything they needed. We are prone to think that a man's life consists in the abundance of the things which he possesses. That's an occupational hazard of being a human being, but that's totally wrong. A man's life consists in a relationship to God through Jesus Christ. This is life, and having that, we have all. He did it to humble them, to prove them, to teach them, and to bless them. In verse 16, it says that he might humble thee, and that he might prove thee to do thee good at thy latter end. The whole design of it was to bless them through this process. If our state were never changed, if our situation remained just on a level plane, if we were not put under a variety of tests, then we would not develop a variety of graces. We would not develop the different sides of our life that are a part of growing up under the stature of Jesus Christ, becoming more Christ-like. We would only develop one set of graces. There are certain graces that can only be grown in certain kinds of soil. The grace of hope can only be born when you're put in the soil of hopelessness, and then God makes a promise to you. The grace of meekness can only be grown in the soil of persecution. The grace of faith only in the soil of difficulty. The grace of peace only in the soil of turmoil. It's only when you're under pressure and turmoil that you can begin to draw on and experience the peace of God that passes understanding. This grace is nurtured in that kind of soil. The grace of patience, of steadfastness, is only nurtured. Uh, when we're in a situation that is long-enduring and painful. As Charles Simeon said, Moreover, according to the measure which we attain of the stature of Christ, will the recompense of our, will be the recompense of our reward. Every grace we exercise will be found to our praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. As Paul puts it, his sufferings were working for him and ours for us, a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory in the world to come. To bless us at our latter end as he's conforming us to the image of Christ, making us more like Christ. Remember the road he says, and consider the chastening. In the fifth verse, thou shalt also consider in thine heart that as a man chasteneth his son, so the Lord thy God chasteneth thee. That chastening was a part of the road. It was a part of his providence. 
but it was a little different. The chastening grew out of the wrong response to the test. God would put them under certain circumstance to see and let them see how they would respond. When they responded in a wrong manner, then chastening came. Maybe he sent a plague. Uh, in different ways, he dealt with them. And so it is with you. He puts you through a test. When you respond, respond wrongfully, he chastens. Consider the chastening. Consider in thine heart that as a man chasteneth his son, so the Lord thy God chasteneth thee. What should we consider about it? Well, he's got here a comparison. He says, think of it as a father chastening his son. What is there about a father's chastening his son that is similar? It's done in love. The chastening that we experience is done in love. God, when he sends affliction into your life and into mine, when he sends trouble and heartache, it's done in love. Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourges every son whom he receives, says the writer of the book of Hebrews. It's done in love, that means that it's not going to be one whit beyond what was necessary to accomplish its purpose. There will be no needless suffering in your life. It has a purpose. In the book, Does My Father Know I'm Hurt? A Christian doctor <clears throat> in Korea speaks of the awful suffering of God's people. And then he points out that this is done in love. We know it's done in love because God so loved us that he chastened his son for us. The chastisement of our peace with God was upon him. The chastisement which was necessary to bring about our peace with God was upon Jesus Christ. The chastisement which is necessary to bring about our conformity to Christ is upon us. But Christ himself bore the suffering, the anguish, the privation that was necessary to bring about our peace with God. Yes, it's done in love. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son, sent him to suffer the pangs of hell on the cross, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. As a father, so the Lord, it's done in love, and it's designed to produce obedience. Why does a father chasten his son? To produce obedience. Why does God chasten you and me? To produce right responses under given situations, biblical responses, biblical patterns of behavior. This is the purpose of his chastening. J. Adams, in his book, Competent to Counsel, uh, points out that God's discipline in love is done to correct, to purify, to train, and to structure his children's lives according to his wishes. And he points out that we often seek pleasure, but our concept of pleasure is 
is not God's concept. Sometimes clients, he says, contrast biblical morality and disciplined living with pleasure. They draw a contrast, and they associate structure with boredom. The truth is that morality is not opposed to pleasure, but to the abuse of pleasure. Morality simply demands pleasure on the long term, God's terms, rather than on impulse. Morality is concerned with lasting and genuine pleasure. Jesus learned God's will from God's word, which he applied to life. He had to learn how to develop biblical patterns by actual practice in responding to life's problems. This is precisely what clients must do. Obedience is the goal of the Christian's life. One must learn to do God's will, which he has discovered in Scripture. He must practice the good so faithfully that whenever occasions to sin arise, naturally and without deliberation, he knows what to do and does it with ease and expertness. This is the purpose of God's chastening in our lives. As a father chastens his son, so the Lord chastens his own. Consider this. Consider this. Think about it. Think about the, law, the road the Lord has led you along. Think about his chastening in the past and in the present in your life. Consider it in thine heart. It's important. Then when you suffer, don't put it down to chance. Be exercised by it. Think through, what is God saying to me under these circumstances? Make whatever changes are necessary and indicated. I was talking to one of our men just recently, and he was speaking of how He was going to cut his grass on Sunday. And somebody remarked to him that uh, he shouldn't cut the grass on Sunday. That was a violation of one of God's commandments. And as a Christian, you wouldn't want to do that. He said, this is the only time I can do it. It's got to be done today. So he went out and started cutting his grass. The blade threw two big rocks and hit his leg. He thought about it, but he kept cutting the grass. Then the blade hit another rock and just twisted up. He decided to quit cutting his grass on Sunday. He decided the Lord was telling him something. Exactly. That's the whole concept that we're talking about, down a very simple plane here. Find out the pattern from the Word of God. God will allow us to be tested. Adjust to the pattern. See in the things that happen, his hand, his voice to you. You know, communion is especially a good time to examine our lives. Over in the 11th chapter of 1 Corinthians, Paul says, Let a man examine himself, and so let him eat. Because he that eateth unworthily of the communion brings to himself judgment. If we would examine ourselves, he says, 
if we would judge ourselves and correct ourselves, then God would not judge us. He wouldn't have to do the correcting. But when we're judged of God, it's in terms of chastening, he says. And he told the Corinthians, he says, For this cause many of you are weak and sickly and many sleep, because you have not judged yourselves. You have not examined yourselves. God has had to send this. Communion is especially a good time to reflect on the road, to consider the chastening, to make some changes. Examine yourself. Really be submissive to the Lord. Make whatever changes he's indicating. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for the wonderful, miraculous provision pictured for us in this sacrament. We thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ did take the chastisement, the chastening that brings about our peace with thee upon himself. We thank thee that it's offered to us in terms of our hearts being repentant and, and our hearts trusting in Christ as our Savior. Lord, help us to examine ourselves, and so let us eat, not run away, but eat. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.